Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 164 of The Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of The Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thanks for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it going. If you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can start by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash observersnotebook. And if you'd like to join the ALPO, membership starts at only $22 a year. Find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And you can also find the ALPO on Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode. And now, episode 164. And we're going to the Vatican. Enjoy. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to this edition of the Observer's Notebook podcast, and we are continuing on our historic observatory series, and today we're at the Vatican, talking to, to uh, Paul Gaber from the Vatican Observatory. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Good morning. Yeah, now before we start talking about the observatory, why don't you give a little bit of background about yourself? Um, well, um, I started out studying particle physics. <clears throat> then I joined the Jesuits, so I did uh, philosophy and theology, and mm -hmm. uh, after that I uh, um, did a doctorate in astrophysics, so I kind of uh, did a little bit of a zigzag there. Um, and I've been with the Vatican Observatory since 2010. Okay. Now, how did you, get, how, how did you become inter interested in astronomy? Oh, my. Well... I guess uh, I was interested in astronomy as a kid, but uh, I didn't actually pursue it until uh, until much later in life. As I've said, I was uh, more into particle physics, um, high energy physics. So um, uh, the astronomy orientation was also a little bit in that direction because um, I was doing instrumentation in particle physics, mm -hmm. and uh, that's kind of what I what I did also for my doctorate in astrophysics. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the observatory. Now, it's where is the observatory located? So the observatory has two locations, okay. uh, two um, main locations, so to speak. So one is just outside of Rome, the papal summer residence of Castel Gandolfo. Okay. And um, the other one is in Tucson, Arizona. 
Now, <clears throat> I need to say that the reason for that is light pollution, primarily, um, because um, first, of course, the Vatican Observatory was actually in Rome. Mm -hmm. um, in the 1930s, um, this new headquarters were built uh, in uh, in Castel Gandolfo uh, on the roof of the papal palace, and then later in uh, the gardens as well. So there are four domes there. And um, already in the 1960s, it became obvious that the light pollution mm -hmm. in Gandolfo was uh, also very bad. And so we started looking for another site, first in Italy. And uh, then in 1978, uh, Father George Coyne became director of the Vatican Observatory. And uh, he was a professor at the University of Arizona. So he said, well, why don't we just uh, establish some kind of a collaborative relationship with the University of Arizona and um, use their facilities to do our observational work. So that's what happened. And uh, we essentially ended up um, here starting in uh, 1981. Um, so it's been quite a long, uh, long presence. And in the late 1980s, we um, got uh, an offer to use the prototype um, mirror, which was first to be um, made using this new technique of spin casting, right, uh, and uh, to build a telescope around it. So, so that's what uh, what happened. So, um, this year we'll be celebrating the 30th anniversary of the dedication of our um, six foot, uh, 1.8 meter telescope, which uh, is on Mount Graham. That's uh, not quite in town. It's about four hours drive from from campus. Mm, okay. Yeah. When I when I started this series of historic observatories, you know, I was asked about doing the Vatican Observatory. I thought, well, I have to brush up on my Italian. But <laughs> I found out you, you know, what you guys are doing is in is in, is in Arizona. That's pretty wild. That just surprised me. Yeah. So uh, actually, not many people know about our presence here. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, you know, the, the astronomical community is relatively cognizant, but, uh, right. um, let's say the good Catholics of Arizona, uh, quite, uh, quite frequently are, are a little surprised. Mm. Yeah. Now how about, let's go back in time when the Vatican observatory first began. Can you talk about that? Well, <clears throat> the. Let's say the first incarnation of the Vatican Observatory was a byproduct of uh, the Papal Committee for the Reform of the Calendar, which was uh, established in 1572. Mm. And um, in 1582, 10 years later, the new calendar, the calendar which we call the Gregorian calendar, mm -hmm. was promulgated by Pope Gregory XIII. And in the process, in those 10 years, um, a tower, an observational tower was built uh, in the Vatican. This was a... Um, a pre-telescope era, of course. First telescope was used for astronomy in, 15, in 1609. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the 1570s, so um, 40, 50 years earlier. And um, uh, essentially, the the, the observ observational tower is still there. It's uh, fairly tall. Um, it's about 70 meters or so. Um, and... Um, it hasn't really been used for uh, astronomical purposes uh, since um, the early 20th century. 
was used on and off for that purpose. Um, then the, the Vatican uh, Observatory or the Papal Observatories in Rome and in the Papal States uh, went through several uh, several iterations. There were uh, pontifical observatories uh, in uh, in Rome itself um, at the Gregorian College. Uh, sorry, the Gregorian University was called Roman College at the time, the Jesuit uh, University in Rome. And um, <clears throat> um, so basically these um, these different um, versions of, uh, of the Vatican Observatory were there um organically developing uh, basically as a part of the papal states mm. uh, when um, italy uh took rome in uh, uh, 1870 the <clears throat> uh, the two pontifical observatories in rome um were also um taken over by uh, by the kingdom of italy and um they became the Observatory of Rome. Yeah. So the Vatican needed to establish an observatory at the Vatican. Um, and that, that happened um, in, uh, in formally in 1891. And uh, so, so the, that, that is uh, the date of foundation of our particular version of the Vatican Observatory. Um, 1891, and that's also the date of our mission statement. So, yeah. oh my. so a little bit out of date, you could say. <laughs> wow. So, what changes have you seen over the years with the with the observatory? Um. Well, <clears throat> we are fairly fortunate because we, we do have um, <clears throat> relatively stable influx of new people so mm -hmm. that that's uh, essentially what uh, what is going on um and um it, it's it's a small group so uh, maybe 10 um research astronomers okay and um basically <clears throat> since that mission statement i mentioned says that um, the observatory's mission <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> The observatory's mission is to um, show, do uh, astronomical research and show the world that clergy can do astronomy. Mm -hmm. um, that means that we actually have to have um, our staff recruited from amongst the, the clergy, in particular from yeah. among Jesuits. And so um, this is a <clears throat> obviously a little bit of a, um, of a constraint on our recruitment. So uh, essentially, unlike many other institutions where uh, you recruit people according to <clears throat> um, the research program that your institution already pursues and you want to bolster that, we essentially recruit people and then we figure out what research they want to do. So, <laughs> oh, a little backwards there. <laughs> it's a little bit backwards from that point of view, yes. Um, wow. So, yeah, we have um, we have people who are interested in solar system bodies, people who do um, cosmology, um, people who do um, even string theory. So, you know, oh, it's, it's a very varied group, and and therefore our collaborations are mostly outside of our institution. 
Okay. Yeah. There's a, there's a misconception. I, I, I think you'd agree that religion and science don't always see hand in hand with this. And, and to, to say that, you know, the Vatican is doing true science. That's that, that dispels a lot of that thought. Don't you think? Yeah, I, I guess that that's the main reason why we even exist as um, an institution supported by the Vatican city state. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, it's uh, it's the we, we are aside from the uh, Pontifical Academy of Sciences, which is not a research institute, but um, we are kind of the only scientific body within within the Vatican. And uh, um, some people have argued that you know, in principle, these days it would probably be a better idea to have something in, let's say, molecular biology or something like that. But ah. historically speaking, astronomy has been around for a long time and. Um, so that's, uh, probably the reason why, um, the Vatican is still supporting an observatory as opposed to something else to demonstrate this positive attitude towards science. But, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that, uh, science and religion are in conflict is a relatively newcomer, is a relative newcomer. It's, uh, basically mm-hmm. a late 19th century phenomenon, and it had to do with various incarnations of culture wars, um, in Europe, it took a different form. In Italy, in particular, there was a big struggle between <clears throat> church and state over mm-hmm. education, over the the school system. Um, in the United States, it was uh, it was different, and uh, I don't want to go into that. So, anyway, right. uh, the reason why Pope Leo the Thirteenth in 1891 established the Vatican Observatory with that particular mission statement was precisely this context of a of a culture war um over over the school system in italy so hmm. yeah and I, I don't know part of my early education in astronomy dealt with galileo and you know there's there's fact and there's myth about what happened with galileo and the church as well can you talk about that at all sure <clears throat> well I'm I'm not a professional historian, but I dabble a little bit because I teach uh, history of astronomy and philosophy of science at the University of Arizona. Um, so it's uh, it's a topic that has been um, uh, studied quite extensively over mm-hmm. the last uh, few decades by by historians, and um, they came up with um, <clears throat> the um, a, a very good portrait of of the whole cultural context and um, essentially what happened with Galileo um, you could say had more to do with the establishment of the day than with the church uh, somehow as an institution opposing science that's not really what was going on there Um, it was more to do with it had more to do with politics more to do with things like um, losing face and um, Uh, the position of Galileo as a courtier um, and uh, his relationship with um, Pope Urban VIII, uh, who was regarded as a patron. This patron-client relationship is something that we don't quite understand today because it's a little alien to us. Mm. And uh, essentially what uh, appears to have happened is that Galileo um, uh, did something which was which was really regarded as a slap in the face uh, to of the pope so the pope 
and Galileo actually discussed this second book of his, mm-hmm. um, not second, this this book of his, um, quite extensively, um, which is fairly rare for the Pope to to discuss uh, a book um, over, I think, five meetings with, yeah. with an author. Um, and th- that is fairly well documented historically that they had these mm-hmm. five talks about the, the the dialogue on the two systems of the world. And um, the Pope um, was generally pleased with the book. He just wanted a paragraph added to mm-hmm. the conclusion of the book. And uh, everybody knew that. Unfortunately, um, Galileo decided that to publish the book without that uh, that paragraph the Pope drafted, mm. and so so that that uh, couldn't have uh, resulted in anything very positive for Galileo no. because essentially because everybody knew about this, it was um, an affront to to the Pope as a as a as a patron. And um, so um, he 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 basically <clears throat> used the uh, the the whole machinery at his disposal to uh, to show Galileo his uh, his displeasure. And uh, uh, so you could say that the Pope was petty, but that's not necessarily the case. It's more to do with losing face again. So this right. is a, yeah, it's it's a it's a different era. Oh yeah. And um, uh, but anyway, <clears throat> at the time it wasn't really regarded as a problem of the church and science. It was okay. regarded primarily as a problem of Galileo himself, hmm. and um, <clears throat> it only became interpreted as um, as an example of how the church persecuted science um, much later. That's that. Yeah, that's that's the feeling I had too going in. You know, when I first started looking into. Galileo, because I've done a little bit of research on Galileo as well, and it's 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 interesting how that that little incident, <laughs> however little it was, has really uh, progressed. You know, a lot of the feeling about the church and science sometimes. So it's it's pretty. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, you know, the, the the whole history is is um, fairly convoluted and complicated, mm-hmm. but generally speaking. Um, um, mainstream Christianity, Catholicism in particular, has been fairly open towards um, uh, the contemplation of creation mm-hmm. as um, a path to to God. Um, there is this um, doctrine of the two books, which has been around for quite a while, and different um, different authors have expanded on it, and um, it, it has never really been. On the forefront, and so um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if um, um, some people have never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is that God wrote two books: the Book of Creation and the Book of Scripture. And since both of these books have the same author, they can't be in contradiction. But it also means that the Book of Creation contains quite a lot of theological content, which is an interesting point. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, you could. Uh, learn a lot about God by doing science. And this idea is already present um, in um, the letter to the Romans, I believe, in a kind of a, um, not a particularly prominent spot, but it's still there. And um, it was later developed by uh, some of the church fathers and and then um, the, the classic book about this, was published in um, 
1436, if if I'm not mistaken, um, by Raymond Sabundus. So, um, and that that book is called uh, On uh, On the Book of Creatures, I think. Okay. Um, So anyway, it's 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 a topic that's been around in in, uh, an approach, if you like, that's been around in theology for for a while, and uh, this idea that you know. Science shouldn't be regarded as uh, something suspicious. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, is, uh, is is something that's been around. So, um, I, I think uh, you know the the source of the truth, right, is kind of what's um, disputed here sometimes, and um, um, there there are some people. Um, and uh, some religions, um, some brands of Christianity included, that say that uh, all you need to know is in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not really what the Bible says either, because if you think about it, the Bible tells us that God's, God wants to be close to people and wants to be known by people. So why would he limit himself to uh, the Holy Writ? There could be many other ways how God can... Uh, can show um, himself and and his uh, and his uh, message, etc., to to people. It doesn't have to be this particular channel. It could be perhaps a certain privileged channel, maybe, um, but that doesn't mean it's the only one. And uh, I don't really see how you could be, uh, you know, in the line of what the Bible itself says, um, and say that. Only the Bible contains um, God's revelation. Yeah, very good, very good. Now, uh, the observatory itself is it is it uh, it how is it funded? Is it private funding? Well, both. Uh, it, it has funding from the Vatican City State. Okay, and uh, uh, especially what concerns the telescope in Arizona, uh, there is a five hundred one c three called the Vatican Observatory Foundation incorporated in the state of Arizona that uh, uh, helps us um, support uh, our mission here. And that's, you guys work real close with the University of Arizona, right? We do, yes. Um, Essentially, the university still owns the primary mirror of our telescope. And um, um, this is reflected then in, in a stakeholdership kind of agreement we have with them. So um, the stake they have uh, on the telescope, on the observing time, but also on the operational costs is one quarter as opposed to three quarters as ours. Okay. So you split telescope time with them as well then? Correct, yes. Okay. It's um, a little more than just the University of Arizona because, in fact, there is no such thing, legally speaking. There are the universities of Arizona. Mm. Um, so the state of Arizona is the partner here. Okay. What other affiliations does the Vatican Observatory have? Affiliations? Yes. With other organizations? or? Um, well, as such, we, we do have um, various MOUs regarding various particular things. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we have um, um, an instrument which is um, on long-term loan, from the um, National University of uh, Ireland in Galway. Mm. And um, we have um, 
a, what should I call it? A, a, what we are part of um, a, a consortium of um, Catholic universities um, uh, called, I forgot what it's called actually. Um, there is a, a, an acronym. Um, but anyway, uh, so, so the, and, and then, so these are uh, things that concern the institution as such. Okay. And then there are <clears throat> uh, these collaborative um, uh, arrangements we have uh, regarding various research projects. So um, those are um, also fairly often um, somehow regulated using MOUs and um, so uh, and, and and agreements and contracts and and so on. So, um, for instance, um, we had a collaborative um, project with the Astrophysics Institute in Potsdam, just outside of uh, of Berlin, mm. in Germany. And um, uh, I'm speaking about in the past tense because the the data taking stage of it uh, is over. Now we're just uh, uh, on the brink of publication. Uh, of the first uh, batch of, of results and then the second uh, uh, complete um, set of results will be published probably in a, in a year or two. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's just one example of, uh, okay. of many. Okay. What type of uh, instrumentation, observing equipment does the observatory have? Well, we... Um, we basically uh, have two instruments at the telescope, um, the uh, 4K imaging camera okay. um, and uh, a spectrograph with a resolution of uh, a few thousand. Um, okay. So um, the, uh, the Galway instrument I mentioned before, it's something which is uh, also available and uh, it's sometimes used. Uh, that's a fast imager. Um, uh, we're currently um, working on uh, uh, upgrades to the telescope and also um, we are probably going to acquire a new camera, uh, a general purpose imaging uh, camera. Okay. So, um, uh, things are in 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 motion, but um, yeah, the when it comes to uh, when it comes to our telescope and its location, it's uh, ten thousand five hundred feet. Um, the air tends to be fairly dry, so um, it's uh, it's a good spot for all kinds of um, astronomy um, that you wouldn't be able to do elsewhere. Right. So this telescope, although it is only uh, uh, 1.8 meters um, because of the location mm -hmm. uh, actually can do a little more than than you would expect and uh, um, it is <clears throat> um, designed around that primary mirror which as I've said was a prototype so right um, the optics of the telescope are a little strange from that point of view the because it was a prototype it was a demonstrator of a technology and uh, uh, it was simply um, uh, chosen to have an f over one uh, oh, focal my. ratio, uh, which of course makes uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, the optical applications uh, 
a little difficult to do uh, without a corrector plate, etc. Mm -hmm. So um, our field of view, which is reasonably flat, is uh, about 15 arc, sec arc minutes. And um, um, because of the location, etc., the the selling point of our telescope mainly is um, um, is photometry. So we do um, various types of projects that uh, um, focus on on uh, um, various types of um, differential photometry and sometimes absolute photometry as well. Okay. Um, the spectrograph, on the other hand, uh, can be also used, um, obviously, because we have it and. Um, it was optimized for stellar classification. Um, it's um, um, it, it would be a good um, instrument for, let's say, bad weather, <laughs> bad seeing. But um, um, at the moment, we don't really have the ability to swap between the instruments without actually doing an instrument change. So uh, from that point of view, um, we might uh, um, so. <clears throat> do, do that as a, as a part of uh, these longer term upgrades to to the facility to, to have the ability to switch instruments okay. on the fly, but we don't have that ability yet. So um, yeah. Okay. So what are some what are some of the uh, science programs going on there now? Well, <clears throat> we have um, one very long term project that uh, looks at open clusters. Mm -hmm. Um, this has been going on for 35 years, perhaps, oh um, because it predates the telescope. <laughs> um, and uh, that is using uh, using a special filter set called the Vilnius filters, uh, and it allows you to figure out pretty much um, uh, everything you, you want to know about uh, an open cluster, So, um, it, because it can differentiate between... Um, various types of redshift, including the reddening induced by by dust. And um, so you can you can classify the stars um, in in a in a cluster. You can therefore tell uh, what the age of the cluster is, etc. So we've been um, collecting data on on these clusters for for, for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, and the applications of that or the um, potential um for for this uh, for this data uh <clears throat> has been um improved now with with uh, gaia because it goes a little beyond gaia and it will also be something that uh, will be very useful in the era of um um of um of the vera rubin survey telescope so um Anyway, this this uh, this is one project. Uh, then um, we are involved in a collaboration with the University of Arizona, with the Max Planck Institute in Heidelberg, and uh, with the National Central University in Taipei, um, in a project that looks at um, transits of exoplanets. So I think there are six or seven telescopes involved in that uh, in that project, and uh, essentially what we are looking at are late M dwarfs, so M six through okay. M nine, and um, uh, basically uh, we are 
I think already at the point where we can claim that we've exhaustively looked at the habitable zones of these of these objects within 15 parsecs of uh, of uh, the solar system. So um, um, that was one project uh, mm -hmm. that is still ongoing. Um, the project I mentioned with uh, the Potsdam um, <clears throat> Astrophysics Institute. Uh, that was uh, a project that uh, was a, spectros a spectroscopic class of, uh, characterization and detailed characterization of r rather bright stars um, in the North Ecliptic Pole region, um, sort of preemptively looking at these objects um, because um, that, that is where the TESS survey is uh, um, making the most passes and uh, uh, therefore there is the best chance that uh, there will be some um, interesting planets discovered there. So what we're trying to do is um, characterize the potentially host stars uh, of those planets. And um, uh, we are doing that not with our spectrograph, but we're doing it with the Pepsi spectrograph, the Potsdam Eschel polarimetric spectroscopic instrument mm -hmm. which is uh, one of the um, um greatest spectrographs in the world today mm -hmm. and it just so happens that it uh, is in the base of the pier of the large binocular telescope which is on mount graham and so we have a fiber link um taking the light collected by our telescope to that very high resolution spectrograph. And when I'm say, saying very high resolution, I'm talking about 250 to 300,000 range. Oh my goodness. And um, <clears throat> the spectrograph um, obviously only receives, uh, after you know a third of a mile or so of, uh, of fiber, only receives uh, the red light. Um, the blue light is um, lost in the fiber. Um, but it still is enough to um, determine quite a lot of interesting things about the host stars, uh, about the chemical composition, um, especially the various types of um, um, of um, heavier elements obviously present. And so um, <clears throat> the correlation, the potential correlation between the presence of, uh, um, of these elements and um, the presence of planets can be studied. Um, Anyway, so so this this was another project that's uh, um, going on, and uh, last but not least, let me just say that the telescope is also used, um, especially through um, the Arizona <clears throat> Time Allocation Committee. That is to say, that through the three universities of Arizona for student work. So um, graduate students use our telescope for their projects. Okay, and um, that 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 is a a great, uh, great way to to use the telescope. The graduate school um, at the University of Arizona is um, one of the uh, largest in the nation, and essentially, it has <clears throat> this uh, long term tradition of uh, allowing people to take their own data. So, uh, you know, mm. a graduate from um, from the uh, Arizona, uh, the the University of Arizona graduate school tends to uh, tends to be a little more hands on than your average uh, 
PhD in astrophysics. Hmm. Interesting. Now, is there public outreach programs and programs like that? Well, <clears throat> yes, we are obviously involved in that. Um, the, the the problem with the telescope as such is that uh, it is at a remote location right. and the access to it is uh, controlled um, by um, the um, the, the uh, permit we have, uh, the or rather the university has from the United States Forest Service, and so the uh, the any any visitors to the telescope have to go through the Eastern Arizona College, okay. uh, which uh, is uh, a community college style uh, institution in Safford, Arizona, on the foot of the mountain, and they organize tours. Okay. Um, usually um, May through October um, and, and Fridays and Saturdays uh, you can you can inquire there um, as to okay. what, what are the plans so essentially um, when we do um, outreach uh, it uh, it it is not directly linked to our facilities um, we do outreach by giving talks, um, by um, having um, summer schools, um, having uh, various workshops, and so on. But um, and and of course publications. But we we don't really um, have, um, let's say, a visitor center or something like that. But okay. but, but there is if if you <clears throat> if you want to go to Castel Gandolfo, there is a way to <clears throat> to visit there through um the vatican museums oh, okay yeah i've been to the vatican a few times it's an impressive place i'll tell you that have you been to castel gandolfo uh, i don't know where that's at oh so you haven't <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's um I've been it's not very city. far yeah. uh, from from rome okay uh, it's only about 18 miles or so okay but it does take a while to get there usually um because of traffic and uh generally speaking uh the way things uh are arranged there so um you can take a train or you can drive and basically comes down to the same uh, amount of time so from downtown rome to castle gandolfo it's about an hour okay whatever you do and uh, <laughs> short of taking a helicopter and, <laughs> um so it's a it's a very very nice spot um it used to be um the villa of the emperor domitian uh, in the first century, and then uh, it was it went through many, many owners, and um, uh, since, uh, in in fact, since uh, the, um, uh, the the same pope that was so that became so infamous because of his uh, contentious relationship with Galileo, Urban the um, Eighth, that that was when a huge chunk of that property was was added to uh, mm -hmm. to the papal holdings and. Um, uh, so, essentially, for the last four hundred years or so, there's been the papal summer residence of one of them. And after Italy <clears throat> took over the papal states, um, this has been the only papal summer residence. So, um, hmm. it's uh, it's it's really a a pretty spot, um, and uh, it has these four domes uh, I mentioned earlier with. Um, uh, one telescope that predates the the Vatican Observatory to us, but by a few years, let's say a couple of years, 
um, the Carducial telescope. I don't know whether you are familiar with uh, the Carducial project. It was no, the not. first uh, international collaboration where people, um, 22, I think, observatories around the world divided the celestial sphere into zones and they they uh, uh, undertook this this um, photographic mapping of the sky hmm. and uh, they used standard telescopes for it so all 22 observatories have the same telescopes made by um, well two two companies um, but according to the same plan so uh, the Vatican Observatory has been involved in that uh, in the 1890s and uh, the telescope uh, is there, and it's actually been restored very nicely. So we we use it for star parties uh, because it, it it has one of its two two tubes um, is uh, a kind of a finder scope. Um, so it's optically the same as the other tube, which is uh, which is used for uh, the actual photography. So these uh, four inch photographic plates go on on the other side of the tube, but uh, uh, the side which is used as a finder scope is is uh, is great because uh, it's a refractor, so you can uh, with uh, a focal length of I don't know something like uh, ten feet. So oh, right. it's 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 nice to use for a star party. Um, and uh, th then we have two telescopes uh, there from the nineteen thirties, Carl Zeiss telescopes. Um, Again, one of them can be used for great star parties. It's uh, uh, a little more cumbersome to use because uh, that 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 has a focal length of about four and a half meters, I think. Oh. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's another refractor. Um, and um, then we have a telescope from the nineteen fifties, a Schmidt camera. Mm -hmm. Um, which unfortunately um, we basically abandoned around eighteen, around nineteen ninety, simply because um, in order to use it these days, you'd really have to rebuild the um, the focal plane. You would need to um, build some kind of a large uh, imaging array for it, and it really wouldn't make too much sense to do it with the level of light pollution right. um, in that location. So. Yeah, it's sad. We, we we even looked into um, donating it and transporting it somewhere, but um, it would actually be cheaper to build a new telescope. <laughs> so oh. it's just sitting there um, doing nothing much. It's a, it's a shame, though. Yeah. Um, maybe one day somebody will come up with an idea how to use it. <laughs> so what are some of the future plans for the Vatican Observatory? Well, <clears throat> um, so the... The telescope here in Castigan, in, uh, in 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 Tucson, or rather in in southern Arizona and Mount Graham, um, is going to celebrate its thirtieth anniversary of dedication. So, oh. um, it is high time to um, move it to another level, and uh, we uh, are um, going to do that. We have a contract with uh, a company that will <clears throat> uh, overhaul its. Uh, encoders its um uh its its drives and uh, and everything so um it will allow us to run fully remotely 
uh, with nobody present at night um, on site. Um, and uh, we'll also be able to run the telescope in scripted mode. So um, this means that <clears throat> we will probably be able to use the telescope, um, offer the telescope to our collaborators in Europe. <laughs> Uh, of course, we could use it ourselves from Casta Gandolfo, mm -hmm. but uh, other people could use it too uh, during daytime, which is nice. Yeah. Um, the um, the other upgrade to the telescope that is hopefully going to follow um, in pretty much immediately after this um, upgrade to the mount, the mount control system, um, is this new camera, which... Uh, will have similar parameters to the current one when it comes to the field of view um, and the you know the pixel size and so on. But it will um, be a modern camera, so it will probably have um, much reduced readout times. And we could probably go for a CMOS. We haven't made a mm -hmm. determination of that yet. We are just um, in the process of um, starting... Um, the work of a of an ad hoc science advisory committee that will help us select uh, a camera for the telescope. Um, so, with various uh, various science cases uh, competing for <laughs> for different um, you know uh, specific features. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, hopefully, we'll we'll have the camera uh, and uh, the telescope um, overhauled around the same time in twenty twenty four. So next year, and um, um, then the next step after that would be what I already hinted at, um, to essentially rebuild um, or build a new um, instrument interface that would allow us to swap instruments on the fly. Um, that, that could be uh, another way how to optimize the time on the telescope so that we can have um more efficiency yeah different projects um available for different kinds of uh, of atmospheric conditions okay so um that 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 would be the step after that but um we shall see exactly uh, where that goes and where the uh, the astronomy uh, goes in in particular of course these days with time domain astronomy and uh, with uh, follow up um it's it's very important to to be ready mm -hmm. um in in particular we are part of um through the university of arizona uh, of uh, the follow-up network for gravitational um <clears throat> gra gravitational wave detections and um we, we have um we, we're trying to make sure that that uh, the, the telescope and is operational uh, modes are compatible with uh, with projects like that. Hmm. Fascinating. Wow, Paul, this has been amazing. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Do you have any welcome? Do you have any other information you'd like to share with our audience? Well, um, um, I I think um, you know if, if uh, there is one message I would like to emphasize, it's uh, the importance of. Uh, um dark sky protection mm. um essentially uh, the story of uh, 
our migration to the Wild West, so to speak, <laughs> to Arizona has been uh, uh, driven by uh, by light pollution. Right. Uh, which is not a not uh, you know not not that we have anything to regret about our relationship with the University of Arizona. On the contrary, right. been very productive. But um, I have to emphasize that uh, you know um, we were fortunate that we had this option to, right. to find a location that uh, welcomed us and allowed us to to thrive here. But um, you know, there are many institutions that. Uh, essentially um uh, in a fixed location and and the the utility of their instruments uh, is um, is sadly diminished by by light pollution and these days of course the various uh, satellite constellations uh, don't so, get me started on that <laughs> yeah so anyway <clears throat> we've been actually involved um in one capacity or another with um some of the some of the key people in uh, the 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 in the area of uh, of uh, dark sky protection uh, tucson as you know is the, the the birthplace and headquarters of the international dark sky association um, but also the uh, national observatory uh, which uh, used to be known as the noao and now is the noi lab uh, uh has its headquarters just across the road from Stewart observatory on campus of the university of arizona and and there is a group there that uh, has been very active in promoting um dark sky protection um so it's um it's it's a it's an important part of uh of i think uh our mission to be good astronomical citizens so to speak and then try to promote uh, the awareness uh and uh the protection of uh, of dark skies so very well said very well said well paul i want to thank you again for coming on the podcast today thank you uh, it was a pleasure having uh being with you all right Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. Again, I want to thank Father Paul Gaber for coming on the podcast today to talk to us about the Vatican Observatory. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I would really appreciate it. You can also listen to us on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Echo, Spotify, and also on the ALPO YouTube channel. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving up to $35 a month, where you will receive one year's membership to the Alpo and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I want to thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer, for their generous support of the Observer's Notebook. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the Alpo, is in the show notes. If you'd like to get a hold of me, my email address is cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at @observersNBPod. And until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.